Jesus was standing before Pilate. He was on trial before Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you a king? Here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it's not of this world, where is it from? He's not talking about a physical kingdom. Pilate is worried about a physical kingdom. He's worried about some threat to his emperor in Rome. Pilate is the governor under the authority of the emperor. Are you a king? Jesus says, not of this world. If I were, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is talking spiritually here. He'd come in the flesh because I told you last week that Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth. They were supposed to rule the earth. Satan came and tempted them and they gave rule of the earth to Satan. Jesus had to come fleshly as a man born of a virgin to take the earth back. And so Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, but I've come to take back. Now, make no mistake, he's coming. Revelation, I just read the, the, the last few verses of Revelation uh, yesterday. He's coming back. He's coming gloriously. He's going to sit on his throne in this world, but not yet. Right now, his kingdom is spiritual, and we're supposed to fight battles with spiritual weapons. Until he comes back, we're in a battle, a spiritual battle with the enemy of God. And victory in this battle depends entirely upon which kingdom you operate under. See, there's, when you ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, your citizenship is transferred into the kingdom of God. Here's what it says in Colossians 1.13. For he has rescued, he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned, the one sin, it brought us into the kingdom of darkness. Satan now reigns. When you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life, your citizenship is transferred from the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus Christ has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. If you're a believer in Jesus, then your allegiance has changed from the things of this world to the things of heaven, to the kingdom Jesus was speaking about when he was talking to Pilate. You no longer align yourself with Satan. But with Christ, you have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And, and let me just say this. There's only two possibilities, two possibilities. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. You are serving one of those. Too many believers try to live in between. Here's God, here's Satan. Believers try to live in between. And that's a miserable place to be because you were never designed to live in the middle. You're going to be one or the other. So the Christian life, if you're going to be successful in the Christian life, then you have to live that life from a heavenly perspective. And if you're going to win in the spiritual battle, you're going to have to use spiritual weapons. Now, the warfare is fought from heaven, perspective heaven, not earth. Now, there's a couple of verses that the Lord brought up to me, and, and I want to explain them. Here's the first one, Psalm 66, 18. David is talking, and he's he's laid out all this stuff, and then he says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, what that means is if I treasured sin more than I treasured God, if I have unconfessed sin in my heart, if I approve of what God condemns, then what that means is I am attaching myself to the kingdom of darkness. And I'm, I'm dragging along the kingdom of darkness wherever I go. If I cherish sin in my heart, then I, I am attached to the kingdom of darkness and I'm dragging it around wherever I go. Unconfessed sin. So it says, if I'm attached to the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light, look what it says. The Lord would not have heard. It means, it means when I pray, if I'm attached to the kingdom of darkness, God doesn't hear my prayer because I'm approving of sin that he condemns. So he doesn't even listen to my prayer. The only prayer he will listen to is confess, 
confessing my sin. So unconfessed sin keeps me away from God. And so I've got my fridge over there. It's coming back in the next few weeks. So if I have, if I have sin, whatever it is, whether it's bluebell in my freezer or whether it's sexual sin, whatever it is, I'm attached to it. God says, I'm not going to hear any prayer unless it's a prayer of confession. There's no power in your prayer because you've already decided that you're going to live against your prayers because you're holding on to the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. Second verse, James 4, 7. James, the half-brother of Jesus says, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourself means you confess your sin to God. You agree with God about your sin. We're never told to flee from Satan. See if I can get out of this thing. Ooh, thank you, Jesus. First time I tried that this morning, it didn't work. I was really worried about that. I thought, well, at least you'll remember the sermon. Humble yourselves before God. That means agree with God. I've messed up. The only power in the universe that can free you from your bluebell in your freezer or your sin, whatever your sin is, is God. So you have to humble yourself. So that's the first step. Second step is resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are not ever told to flee from Satan. We're told to flee from temptation. We should run from temptation, but not from Satan. We're, told, we're, we're actually told in Scripture by James that if we trust God and his word, Satan has to flee from us. That's remarkable to me. Now, any area of life that is held back from God is where you're going to be tied to the kingdom of darkness, and it's where all of your defeats are going to happen in your life because you're tied, tied to the kingdom of darkness. And that is why, when, you are, when you're tied to the kingdom of darkness, that is why an uncommitted Christian can't live with themselves and they can't live with anyone else because they're chained to the kingdom of darkness. And it's why there will always be conflict in their lives until they humble themselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee. So this battle, imagine, okay, I want you to use your imagination for a second. Imagine that you're a soldier, and, and let me describe this for you. Imagine you're a soldier, and, in, in, uh, and you're carrying a heavy pack in the heat of battle. You hold an M16 as you ride shotgun through the city. You and six other guys are supposed to check out a building that might have some terrorist insurgents inside. This isn't a game. In fact, one of your buddies got blown up just during just such a mission yesterday. However... Today, you nervously look around every corner. You don't find anyone. And so you relax a little bit. The building is empty, so you pause for a brief respite, and you open your rations. What is your response going to be when you put that first bite into your mouth of an MRE? Oh, my, the food is really lousy here. They didn't use nearly enough seasoning. The portions are a little smaller than I prefer, and they don't even serve it warm. We really should let someone know about this. Maybe that's not all you feel strongly about, so you move on to other issues. This gun, it's just too heavy. I don't even think I'm going to take it with me tomorrow. And why do we have to carry these packs, these gas masks, all the chemical suits? That's overkill in my opinion. Who came up with this idea? And this electronic gear, the radios and all of that stuff, it's just taking up space. I'm not sure we're ever going to need it. Maybe tomorrow we can lighten our load and we can bring some video games and a Bluetooth speaker and have a dance party instead. That attitude would only come from someone who is under the delusion that he's on a playground, not in a battlefield. How long would that soldier last in war if he gave up all of his equipment to play? That's exactly like many American Christians. We're in a battle, and we think we're on a playground. 
Here's what God's word says about our battle. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to, what's that word I have highlighted? Come on, help me out. What is it? That doesn't sound like a nice word. You're going to demolish something? That sounds harsh. We're not on the playground. We're in a battle. The weapons we're supposed to use are divine. That means from God, and they have power to demolish strongholds. Or I, I, Now, in the, in the brackets there, that's a word I put in because it's actually fortresses. Not just a stronghold. How many of you have seen a fortress? Right? Janie and I went to Puerto Rico several years ago, and we were around. There's fortresses out there, and I mean massive fortresses. It's incredible. The fortresses, they're still there from World War II when we remodeled them to use them in World War II. The United States did. Incredible. And if you were going to come into the Caribbean, you had to get past the fortresses. The problem is you and I have fortresses in our hearts because we are chained to sin. And it's not because anyone else made us sin. It's because we have chosen to sin. God has divine power to demolish the fortresses in our souls. And then look what he says. We demolish, again, oh, that's a harsh word, arguments. And I put the brackets in there, wrong thoughts. Every sin begins in the mind. And so Satan plants seeds because he, if he gets your mind, he gets your body. We demolish arguments, which are wrong thoughts, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. Satan doesn't care if you mix a little bit of truth, of God's truth, with the rest of the truth that you're listening to from all the other sources because he knows if he can twist what you believe, he's got you. That will be enough for him to set up arguments and pretenses against the knowledge of God in your heart and your soul. It's like... It's like if we were to go and get all the ingredients for lasagna. Hang on. I looked up all the ingredients for lasagna. One pound of sweet Italian sausage. Three-quarter pound of lean ground beef. Half a cup of minced onion. Two cloves of garlic. Crushed, of course. One 28-ounce can of crushed tomatoes. Two six-ounce cans of tomatoes. Okay, I'm not going to go through all that. But let's say we get all the freshest ingredients and we put it together and, oh, man, you can already, in your mind, you can taste it. And right before you stick it into the oven, you sprinkle a little bit of arsenic on it. Who wants to taste? Who's going to eat that? No one. That's what happens when you listen to what your mama says over what the Bible says. Well, Grandma says it's not what the Bible says. It's when you take the New York Times bestseller and you you take what they say that contradicts the word of God and you sprinkle it in your mind, Satan has you because you've poisoned your mind. And he's building fortresses block by block by block so that when you hear the word of God, you don't even recognize the voice of God because of all the pretenses and the knowledge that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We're in a war and too often we're defeated because we fight (laughs) a spiritual battle. Back up, Satan. Don't you mess with me. This is holy water. Been blessed in the temple. What does the enemy of God think when you fight with a weapon like this? Come on, somebody help me out. What's the enemy of God think? He laughs. I think he thinks, go ahead, idiot. 
you fool. I will defeat you. The weapons that we warfare with are not squirt guns. They're divine for the demolishing of strongholds. So how does he defeat us? Well, he defeats us with temptation. Now, let me ask you some questions. If you're, if you're a Christian, Satan can't take your salvation, but he can make you miserable. How? Well, it's through temptation. So here's the question. Is temptation sin? No. Jesus was tempted. If temptation is sin, Jesus sinned. We know Jesus is sinless, right? Temptation is not sin. Now, think about this. You're minding your own business. You're sitting in church or your work, whatever, but we're in church, so you're sitting in church or you're watching in, in your living room, and, and these thoughts come out of nowhere and just, and you think about that. And you say, what is that? Well, I don't know. It's different for you than for me. I know what that is for me. I'm not telling you. Not, not online, right? But you're, you're just worshiping Jesus. You sang the song. I raise a hallelujah. As soon as you finish, Is the first thought sin? No, but you're close. It's what you choose to do with that that will determine whether it's sin or not. Now, if you're a dude, guys tend to, to, that for guys is one of four areas. Sex, money, glory, or power. It's why everything has a woman with no clothes on to sell it, right? Sex sells, that's what they say. Money, guys guys want money, want prestige. Glory, This is why a little boy will say, it's the ninth inning. The bases are loaded. There's two outs. He's down to his last strike, and he wants to hit the home run. (sighs) Am I the only one? Uh, Okay, all right, all right. The power is when when a guy's like, I know what I'd do. You break into my house, I karate chop you to hell. I don't know, right? Whatever that is, that's Satan, the Bible calls them fiery darts. He doesn't know which one will stick, but he throws fiery darts at you to see what's going to stick. The first thought isn't sin, but it's close. If you make a conscious choice to dwell on that thought, you have just crossed over into sin. Jesus tells us that, that we can sin even in our mind. Matthew 5, 28, and this is, this is indicted every man who's ever lived. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within her heart. Just a few verses before that, he equates being angry with someone with murder. Jesus very clearly says that, that thinking it is not as bad as doing it, but, but sinning always starts in your mind, and you can sin in your mind if you don't get rid of it. So it's like this. I have this pane of glass here. And I've drawn a circle on it. The the, the circle represents your life. And just for fun, I put 10 pie pieces on there representing the 10 commandments. Now, let's say I take a hammer. I'm not going to do this. I did this once before and shattered that thing. And I had a piece piece of glass went in my thumb. All right. Let's pretend I take a hammer and I'm going to try to break only the commandment that I normally break or that you break, right? That, whatever that is for you. What happens if I try to break number two? What happens to all the rest of them? They all shatter. You can't break one without breaking the other. That's what the Bible says. You break one of God's laws, you have broken them all. And it's why you can sin in your mind. Because God knows your mind. He knows your heart. You break them all. If we break one of his commands, we've broken them all. That's why all sin is the same in God's eyes. Satan knows this, so he knows all he has to do is plant that seed that will grow and ruin your life. If you can learn 
to head off temptation when you first experience it, then you're gone a long way towards controlling sin in your life. So the real battle is here. God says, I want you to think of me. It's why he wants you spending time with him every day. It's why he wants you worshiping him every day, not just on Sundays. This should be the culmination of a week's worth of worshiping. By the way, do you know the difference in a congregation that has been worshiping individually all week who comes together? It's like a contagious fire in the presence of the living God. And he's pleased with that. It's why sometimes I believe our worship is stale because we hadn't seen God in weeks. And then we want to come in and just stand before him and jumpstart our, our hearts. It doesn't work that way. It's why when you go to youth camp, by the last night of youth camp, everybody, the worship is just incredible. Because for a week we've been focusing on God. You get up and you do God and you read and you pray. and God wants you to think only of him. Satan wants you to think of anything other than him. Anything other than God. He wants to say to you, it's no big deal. God's not going to kill you over a piece of fruit. It's a very big deal because you break one sin. You break a thought. Sin, and you have broken all of God's commands. And you deserve hell for that. And let's be honest, we haven't broken just one. We've probably broken multiples today. Maybe even on your drive to church. It's a very big deal. So a few weeks ago, I talked to you about having a polar bear alert. Not the little cute polar bear, you know, that the Coca-Cola commercial. Not that guy. The polar bear that if you, were, if you were in the Arctic and you were camping out and you heard a polar bear outside, you would be freaked out. That's what, that's what we need to look at sin as because this, the, the enemy of God is a, is a roaring lion. Idiot would go on a, on a uh, safari in Africa and go walking out at night with no gun, no flashlight, no weapon of any kind. American Christians do it every day. And it's why we're defeated over and over. So we need to have this polar bear alert. So when, when, or a, a lion alert, when that first sin comes in, you need to learn to say, oh, not here. Uh-uh. I'm going to think about God. And, and that's why David said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When that thought comes in, if I start saying that verse out loud, I'm doing exactly what Jesus did. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So we need to take this seriously and fight with divine weapons. So I want to read to you um, a really interesting story from, from Acts. I'm, I just finished studying the book of Acts. I'm in Romans now. But this, this story always jumps out at me. Acts 19, verse 8. Paul, he's the missionary. He was, he was uh, Saul, 
Now they call him Paul because he's the missionary to the Gentiles. Then Paul went to the synagogue, which is what he always did. His habit was, let's go to the Jews first. So he comes to Ephesus, goes to the synagogue, and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn. So I put in brackets here, obstinate, hardened in their thinking. They, they heard the truth. They rejected the truth. They consciously said, I'm not going to believe a word you say. I don't care how persuasively you tell me about God. I'm not going to listen. So look what happens. Rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. They weren't called Christians yet. They were called the way because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So these, these Jews are rejecting everything and, and speaking against the way. Look what Paul does. So Paul left the synagogue, took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, this went on for two years so that all the people who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Gentiles, heard the word of the Lord. So Paul has gone back to Ephesus. He'd started a church here before. This is on his third missionary journey. He's going back to visit the church as he started before. He always starts with the synagogue. Um, and, and in Middle Eastern culture, it was considered polite. If you've got a guest speaker, you invite him to come up and, and do some teaching that day. So Paul did this for three months. If you know anything about the ministry of Paul, you know that three months in a Jewish synagogue, that's like a record for him. Because usually within a week or two, they're hating him, trying to kill him. They're having to sneak him out of the city through a basket at night because they're like, we're going to kill you. Stop talking about Jesus. We're going to kill you. So he has to go somewhere. Three months is remarkable. And so then they, they become obstinate. Instead of messing around with them, he takes all the true believers to this lecture hall. Now, Tyrannus was some kind of teacher. We don't know what kind of teacher. But he owned a lecture hall. He had a school. He had a following. So he probably taught in the morning. And then Paul taught later for two years. Here's the remarkable thing. At the end of two years, the Bible says that everyone, Jews and Gentiles in all of Asia, knew the facts about Jesus because Paul was doing his job. He's magnifying Jesus. He's advancing his kingdom. New believers are magnifying Jesus, advancing the kingdom of God. They're doing their job. The message is spreading rapidly. Everyone in Asia had heard the stories about Jesus, but God is about to take his fame to an H-N-L. A whole nother level. Verse 11. God gave Paul, this is, this is amazing to me, God gave Paul the power to perform extraordinary miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Now, I need to explain something to you. In all of Bible history, there are three special periods of extraordinary miracles. One was in the time of Moses. And if you know anything about Moses, there were crazy, extraordinary miracles in the time of Moses. Two was the time of uh, the prophets Elijah and Elisha. There were crazy, you know, like an axe head floats, and there's just all kinds of stuff happened there. And then the third time of extraordinary miracles was in the time of Jesus and his apostles, those, those that he had gathered around and that he taught. Now listen to me. Each of these periods, these special periods of time, were less than 100 years in length. And we're told in John 20 that not all of Jesus' miracles were written down. In fact, it says that if all of Jesus' miracles were written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold them. But we're going to talk about the ones that were written down. In these three times, the ones that are written down in Scripture, there's less than 100 miracles in all of the 66 books of the Bible, if you go and you classify all the miracles. Well, we know God's all-powerful, then why aren't there more miracles in the Bible? Here's what I believe. Miracles addict us to more miracles, not to the Savior. And I, I can illustrate this through one story in the life of Jesus. Jesus fed the 5,000. We looked at this in our bystander series just a few months ago. 
And they're in the middle of the wilderness. He takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 men, so probably about 15,000 people he, fields with a Hebrew ha- he feeds with a Hebrew happy meal. In the middle of nowhere. It says they come to try to make him king, and so he goes off to a uh, mountain to pray by himself. He sends his disciples on. You remember they went in the storm. Jesus walks on the water. He calms the storm. They get to the other side. The next day, these people who had been fed come and find him because they want to make him king. Jesus then begins to teach them the word of God. And they're like, well, no, 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 stop that. We want another miracle. Show us a miracle. Bring down manna from heaven like Moses did in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, no, you, you people are always looking for a sign. He called them signs. Now, Jesus did miracles for, for certain reasons. And, and they were not for three reasons. To demonstrate his compassion on humans by meeting their needs. To demonstrate a spiritual truth, to validate his claims to be the son of God. And his apostles did miracles for those three same reasons. But miracles are not even the point. Miracles are a sign to point people to Jesus. I tell you this all the time. It's like if we're going to Dallas and and the first time you see a Dallas sign, nobody stops and, and has a picnic and goes, we've made it to Dallas. We're at the first sign. A sign, a miracle was not even the point. The miracle, the sign was to say Jesus is the son of God extraordinary miracles. God enabled Paul to perform special miracles in Ephesus because their city, listen to me, their city was a center for the occult. Paul invades Satan's territory and he demonstrates a power greater than Satan's. But our enemy is very, very smart. And he knows that you and I are tempted by power. It was true then, it's true today. If we're not careful, Satan will tempt us with power. Look what happens in verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, Jesus was, was accused one time by the Jews of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus is like, that doesn't even make sense. A, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. And then he says, if I drive out demons by the power of Satan, who do your leaders drive them out by? And they're like, oh, we didn't see that coming. So they quit asking him questions about that. Jesus is like, that doesn't even make sense. So, so these Jews, they would go around, try to, to invoke the name of Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, I love this. It's not funny, but it is. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. He's the son of God. Because anytime they saw Jesus, we know who you are. You're the son of the most high. They knew Jesus. Look, he says, Paul, I know about. I've heard of Paul because like handkerchiefs are casting us out. I've heard of Paul. Who are you? You got no power. You got no power. And here's the deal. Satan attempts to imitate the work of God because he knows lost people can't tell the difference. In this instance, it was not unusual at all for the Jewish leaders to try to cast out demons. What was, what was really strange was they tried to use the name of Jesus and the Jews hated Jesus and, and that's why they got him killed because they hated him. The real problem is these seven sons of Sceva had no relationship with Jesus. They weren't under his authority. So when you use the name and you don't have the authority behind it, they thought that using in the name of Jesus 
was like some magic spell, like some incantation. And what was Ephesus known for? Witchcraft, incantations, the occult. And did their scheme work? If you know this story, did their scheme work? Who knew? Demon says, I know Jesus, heard about Paul. Who are you? (laughs) And let me just give you a little warning. When you fight a spiritual battle, don't you dare show up with one of these. Because look what happens to him in verse 16. The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Had these priests succeeded in casting out demons, it would have discredited the name of Jesus because they would just use some in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, get lost. Demon says, I don't know who you are. In fact, I'm going to whip your butt and take your clothes. God used this incident to defeat Satan and magnify his name among the people. Everything in Scripture, every story in Scripture is about glorifying God and advancing his kingdom. So we're, offered, we're, we're tempted by power. We're offered a counterfeit is the second thing. Satan knew that if he could get this counterfeit in there, they weren't going to listen to the true Jesus. He knows if he can get you to chase a counterfeit, you won't listen to the real thing either. All that's required for you to miss heaven is just be distracted for a little bit. Lots of folks are so blinded by the counterfeit that they don't believe there's a God. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in demons. They think Christianity is a crutch for the weak. Let me tell you this. I do not believe in ghosts, but I believe in demons. Jesus talked about them. The scripture is filled with demonic activity. God has a greater power. (laughs) Hell is very real and was created for Satan and his demons as a place of eternal punishment for their rebellion against God. Let me tell you, this is a fictitious story, but I thought this had relevance here. There was a meeting in hell. Satan called his four leading demons together and commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. I have it, one demon said. I'll go to earth and tell people there is no God. It will never work, said Satan. People can look around them and see that there is a God. I'll go and tell them that there is no heaven, suggested a second demon. But Satan rejected that idea. Everybody knows there is life after death. And they all want to go to heaven. Let's tell them there is no hell, said a third demon. No, conscience tells them that their sins will be judged, said the devil. We need a a better lie than that. Quietly, the fourth demon spoke. I think I've solved your problem, he said. I'll go to earth and tell them there's no hurry. You don't need to follow God today. There's always tomorrow. Let's live it up while I'm a teenager. Let's have sex and booze and rock and roll and let's do everything because later we'll get serious about God. The greatest lie from hell is that you don't need to live for God today. You can wait. You don't have to change. God is a God of love, right? He loves everyone. So how can a loving God send anyone to hell? The reality is God doesn't send anyone to hell. Your actions, your choices demonstrate that you want to follow Satan and not God. You choose hell by rejecting Jesus' power and accepting the counterfeit. What so many of us do is we say, I'm number one, I'm in charge, so I'm going to do as I please, and everyone else can just go to hell. What we use as a throwaway line to insult others or end an argument is literally what's going to happen to people that we love. 
because they've rejected the Savior. The only unforgivable sin is to die without ever humbling yourself and asking Jesus to be the forgiver of your sin, the leader of your life. People die every day and face a Christless eternity because they bought the lie. I don't have to do it yet. I'll follow this counterfeit. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge. We don't live in a ghost story. We live in a spiritual story. And the seven sons of Sceva learned the hard way that the choices you make or don't make in this life in the midst of spiritual battle have serious consequences. But there's hope. There's hope. In the battle, if we want to have the power to win, number three, we have to choose the right blood. Hebrews 9.22, this is the Living Bible translation, says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here's the reality of life. You have to choose how your sins are paid for. Option one is that you will suffer for, the, for your own sins. Your blood will be offered as payment for your sins. The result is that if you choose that option, you will reside in hell with Satan and his demons after you die. How do I know this? Because Acts 4.12 says this. Only Jesus has the power to save. Doug doesn't have the power to save. Janie doesn't have the power to save. Keith doesn't have the power to save. Only Jesus has the power to save. If you choose your blood, you will reject God and go to hell. His name is the only one in all the world that can save anyone. How can we tell if someone's made this choice? Well, there should be some changes in their lives. We're told in the Bible that, that when a, a believer, when someone becomes a believer in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That means changes have been made. If no changes ever happen, I would question whether that person's ever met Jesus because Jesus changes us. Let me show you how I know that. Acts 19, verse 18, continuing this story, the seven sons of Sceva just got their tail whipped and ran away naked. Verse 18, many who were followers now started telling everyone about the evil things they'd been doing. They saw the evil of, of Satan's empire. They saw that God had a greater power, and they all started saying, oh, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned. They didn't care who knew. They didn't want to be tied to their past. So they began confessing their sins to one another. Look what happens. Some who had been practicing witchcraft even brought their books and burned them in the public, in public. These books were worth about 50,000 silver coins. So the Lord's message spread and became even more power. They didn't care about the cost. This cost was equal to 150 men's year salary. We don't care. We know we're tied to the kingdom of darkness. We're going to tell people about our sins. We're going to get rid of the, the bluebell in our freezer. We're going to get rid of our sin because we want to be right with God. We've seen the power of darkness. We don't want to go there. We want to be in the power of light. When you choose the right blood, not your blood, but Jesus' blood, you're adopted into God's family. Your life changes. People notice your priorities are different. Your time is spent differently. Your money is spent differently. Because here's the deal. The way you live your life, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money is a clear indication to everyone around you of what you love and who you serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Some of you right now need to choose the right blood because you're under the wrong blood. You need to ask God to forgive your sins. You need to confess that sin. You need to find a Christian. Here's what Scripture says. James says this in chapter 4. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
If you want forgiveness of your sins, you confess straight to God. But there's a power in your life for whatever reason, God has made it where we don't get healed until we have a trusted Christian friend and we confess our sins to them. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. You don't want to confess to someone else, then you don't want to be healed. You go ahead and put those handcuffs back on, chain yourself to the, to the king of darkness, and then don't be surprised when he drags you kicking and screaming to hell to spend eternity with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace, and I thank you that you didn't leave us in a kingdom of darkness, but you showed us how we can be in the kingdom of light. And God, how I pray that today, people listening online, people in this room, will decide to get free from the enemy of God. And how you would raise up, God, I pray you raise up a group of people who are radically obedient to you, so that we can have as many people as possible in heaven, so that when new life someday gathers in heaven at the foot of your throne, there won't be a 100, there won't be 200, there'll be thousands of people who've come into the kingdom of God because we took the spiritual battle seriously. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have uh, two baskets in the back. One is our joy basket. That's how we uh, take up offering here at New Life. Or you can go online, nlccp.com, and you can get set up with push pay. There's a, there's a tab that says online giving, and it'll get you set up. Um, and, and by the way, when you give, there's a portion every month uh, that, that when you give goes to things like backpacks and things like going out to Elkhart and doing Be the Church, all of that stuff. So um, know that, that part of your giving goes around the world, sending missionaries into literally dark places, and also goes to uh, helping us reach people here in Anderson County for Christ. Um, Our second basket is our registration card basket. You see those cards. If you'd fill those out, if you have any prayer concerns, put that on the back. When you go out here, the Welcome Center, there's there's a basket that says registration card. If you want just me to pray for that, then put that down there. If it's okay for me to share with our prayer group, you say okay to share, and and we will pray over those during this week. Remember, we want you to to take some cards. We want you to invite people. We didn't put a date on these on purpose because we wanted to be able to use them all the time. And just some of you don't know this, the back of this says, be our guest this weekend, Sundays at 10 a.m. It has a map. It has uh, our website. It has our Facebook page. Warning, we are not normal. We believe that church should be fun and relevant. So if you're tired of doing the same thing over and over and getting the same result, then why don't you give New Life a try? We think you'll be glad you did. We want people to know that this is a safe place, a church for everyone. We don't care what your background is. We don't care what you wear. We don't care what you smell like. We, we want you to know about the love of Christ. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks um, reaching outside the walls, trying to get people in and telling them about the love of Christ. And we want you to be involved in that. Backpacks are back there by the Welcome Center. These cards are back there by uh, the Welcome Center. If you're interested in, in joining our church in two weeks, would you write that on the back of your card that you want to come to our one-on-one class, our membership class, uh, that'll be there on the 26th. Stand up, hug four people, tell them you love them. You're dismissed. <laughs>